0: I want to abbreviate our second lesson, which is found in the great letter that Paul wrote to Ephesus, in which he speaks about the family. Paul says, live life, then, with a due sense of responsibility, not as men who do not know the meaning and the purpose of life, but as those who do. Make the best use of your time despite all the difficulties of these days. Don't be vague, but firmly grasp what you know to be the will of the Lord. Don't get your stimulus from wine, for there is always the danger of excessive drinking. But let the Spirit stimulate your soul. Express your joy in the singing among yourselves of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making music in your hearts for the ears of the Lord. Thank God at all times for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and fit in with one another because of your common reverence for Christ. You wives must learn to adapt yourselves to your husbands as you submit yourselves to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife in the same way that Christ is the head of the church and the Savior of his body. The willing subjection of the church to Christ should be reproduced in the submission of wives to their husbands. But remember, this means that the husband must give his wife the same sort of love that Christ gave to the church when he sacrificed himself for her. Christ gave himself to make her holy, having cleansed her through the baptism of his word, to make her an altogether glorious church in his eyes. She is to be free from spots or wrinkles or any other disfigurement, a church holy, and, perf- and perfect. The marriage relationship is doubtless a great mystery, but I'm speaking of something greater still. The marriage of Christ in his church, in practice what I have said, amounts to this. Let every one of you who is a husband love his wife as he loves himself, and let the wife reverence her husband. Children, the right thing for you to do is to obey your parents as those whom the Lord has set over you. The first commandment to contain a promise was, Honor thy father and thy mother, that it may be well with thee, and that thou mayest live long on the earth. Fathers, don't overcorrect your children or make it difficult for them to obey the commandment. Bring them up with Christian teaching and Christian discipline. Amen. May God bless to us an understanding of this, his word. I started to begin the service today by telling you that I was going to repeat the sermon on the 121st Psalm by popular demand. But the popular demand is from me, and that wouldn't be entirely honest. And so, but I want you to, to share with me some of the inspiration of this great psalm. Let me tell you a little bit about the Psalter. Beginning at Psalm 120 and going through Psalm 134, We find a little psalter within the psalter, that is, a set of psalms that were meant for singing on a very special occasion. They were sung when the pilgrims, the uh, people of God, were on their way to Jerusalem to worship him. They joined together in great caravans, and like a river with many tributaries that run into it, the caravan would grow as they made their journey on toward Jerusalem. And so they would sing these hymns of the faith as they marched toward Jerusalem. Jesus, our blessed Lord, as a little boy used to go up from the village in which he grew up uh, to the festival in Jerusalem. And doubtless he sung some of these very same songs himself. We begin with Psalm 120, and the first stanza of that psalm tells us, In my distress I cried unto the Lord. We believe that in the time of the captivity in 586 BC, that those people of God who were born across the burning sands of the desert country, 700 miles away into Babylon, suffered tremendously. They had sinned grievously against God and God had allowed them to be punished for their sins. And many of them now are having the joy of returning for the first time back again to Jerusalem. And many scholars believe that this occasioned the initial composition of these hymns, as they would journey back, they would think of the cruelty and the brutal oppression through which they passed while in Babylon. And they could say that they dwelt in the the tents of Meshach and Kedar amongst a brutal and godless people. That when they cried for peace, that these people did not desire peace, but their hearts were bent for war. They had to know what it was like to be maligned by slander. And so the psalmist speaks of the cruelty of lips that are lying about them. And in their distress, they cry unto the Lord, and the Lord hears them and delivers them. And then we come to Psalm 121, which is so familiar to those of us who uh, have ever been in Scotland and those of us who have seen the highlands of North Carolina and who love our mountain country here. The Scottish Psalter which had the paraphrase which we sung a moment ago is particularly fitting for us to sing on this occasion and on this day. Because it is called the threshold psalm, the threshold of course is the doorway into the home and these men of God of old, when they left the house would put their hand onto the right doorpost and touch there a little uh, bit of scripture and they would make a little threshold prayer. They would pray for God to bless their going out and their coming in. They never knew what the day would bring forth. When they journeyed out into the fields, they did not know if they would be set upon by marauding bandits who would come and burn up their harvest and who would seek to destroy them. They did not know what would meet them on the road, and so they prayed to God. They sought from him their protection, the threshold psalm, to protect their home. When I think of this, I think of the fact that in America today, on this Mother's Day, perhaps never before in the history of our country have we been in such desperate straits as far as the home is concerned. Theoretically, we used to read about getting married and living happily ever after. But this is not so anymore. For now, as we were told by the commencement speaker last week, one out of every two marriages in America ends in divorce. Now it is not my purpose here today to bring an indictment or to inflict any more pain upon people who have already suffered greatly from this uh, tragic situation. But it is simply to tell you that the society in which we live, which once was so structured that it brought about that which held the home unit together, is now so structured that it pulls the home apart. This summer in Lausanne, the most popular speaker by far was Malcolm Mugrich, the distinguished TV commentator from Britain. I'll never forget that night in which he spoke, all of the television cameras began to whir and they were looking at this tremendous personality whose use of the English language is probably unparalleled or unrivaled by anyone in the English-speaking world. And Malcolm Muggeridge told us of the destructive influence of television. And when he was speaking, I could not help but think of America. We have 36% of all of the television sets on the planet Earth. Over 100 million of them are in America. And look at what we are entertained by and what it does to so much of us. Malcolm Muggeridge said that he had read of a significant but distasteful experiment in which some frogs were placed in a basin of water in a laboratory. And under the basin of water, there was a flame that was ever so gradually increased. And the water began to rise in temperature almost imperceptibly, so much so that finally, when it had reached the boiling point, all of the frogs expired, they died, but none of them ever exerted enough energy to jump from the dish and escape from what was happening. Now said Mugridge, who is himself a student of the media, and whose life has always been spent in in journalism, and in radio, and in television. Mugridge said this, we are the frogs. The habitat in which we live, the water, is the society in which we are surrounded. The flame beneath it is the media, which is ever so gradually bringing to boil a destructive influence which kills us and we never exert enough energy to jump away from it. When you take the entertainment section of any daily newspaper, and it's hard to read it, it would make Sodom and Gomorrah blush. Cut out the section that tells you of the advertisements for movies. And see where leisure time is spent. Make a five-year scrapbook of it and look at it and see what the constant diet of entertainment is. And let me tell you that everything that you see there will be plastered on your television screens in years ahead unless something is done to reverse the trend which is projected at the present time. This is a horribly destructive thing that has happened to us. It has made us materialistically oriented. It has caused us to have a low morality. It has made us to think that life consists only in the things which we possess. And it has brought about a great deal of grief and heartache. What can we do about it? There are a few very fine and notable exceptions which I would like to mention. We ought to pray for the people who produce television programs We ought to learn how to write the Federal Communications Commission. We ought to learn how to write our senators and our congressmen about it. We ought to applaud those programs that are useful. There are not many, but there are some. I think of the Little House on the Prairie or the Waltons and what a a good influence so many of these programs are. And we ought to encourage more that would be inspirational or helpful in holding the home unit together. The Communists can take Vietnam, the Communists can take Southeast Asia, but the way they'll take America is through that tube in your house and in my house. Some of us have got to have enough discipline to turn it off. Some of us have got to have enough discipline to spend time with our children in such a way that they learn that we consider important the opportunity that we have to be with them. I'll always be grateful to God that in my first year in the ministry, when I came to North Carolina, it was my great privilege to have an elder in our church whose father was the founder of Austin Theological Seminaries. The founder out there was Thornton Rogers Sampson. His son was Francis Watkins Sampson. And old Frank was 77 years old. He became a born-again Christian, even after he was past his three-score years and 10. He told me of how for 50 years of his life he never walked in a church door, but somehow he never escaped from his mother's prayers and his father's prayers. And finally he began to turn back to the influence that had first reigned in the home to which God had allowed him to be born. Last week we had old John Bolton at our house, 83 years old was such a joy to hear that blessed old man begin to speak and to talk about his mother. She has been gone from this earth for over 50 years. She's been dead. And yet he spoke so sweetly of her good influence and her encouragement on his life. Even though it was long ago and far away in Germany, that influence still affects him even at his age and is a blessing and a benediction to him. Well, my elder in Waynesville came to me right away when he saw that I was spending so much time busy with my work, that I was beginning to neglect my family. And do you know what he told me? He came and talked to me like a Dutch uncle, and he didn't speak Dutch. He he said to me very plainly, all these things you're doing for the Lord are very great and good, but the Lord was doing them a long time before you came along. And he said, God gave you a little congregation in your family. And he lectured to me about the two little boys that we had, one of whom we named in honor of him. And he said, if you will learn to get your greatest thrill and enjoyment out of your own wife and out of your own children and prefer their company above the company of any other people, you'll never get in trouble. You'll have a better ministry and you'll be a more useful preacher. It took some years for that to soak in, but it's soaked in, and it's been just like he said it would be, such a blessing. Now, no one should lecture on having a perfect home until all his children are in heaven, and he's in heaven, and the door's closed, because, <laughs> because you never know what's going to happen. Uh, so I don't mean to, to put this up as any pattern, but I mean to say that I have learned from him and I can pray as Job prayed, and I can learn from my family, and my family can learn from me. There are no perfect parents, and there are no perfect children. We have to learn to put up with each other's mistakes, and we have to be patient with each other's mistakes, and we have to love one another. And when we do that, God brings to us a great delight in each other. Now this threshold psalm is really built all around this. The psalmist lifts up his eyes to the hills, but his help doesn't come from the hills. There should be a period, as the English say, a full stop immediately after the expression, uh, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills, period. From whence cometh my help, question mark. And then the exclamation comes, my help cometh from the Lord who made heaven and earth, the Lord who made the hills. That's the one who brings to me the help which I need the most, the maker of heaven and earth. The psalmist found in his soul a great burning joy when he realized that. And at night out on the road when he lay down to sleep and he looked up and he saw against the skyline a sentry standing there silhouetted against the mountain sky. He looked up at the hills and he saw the sentry. And he thought it's good that I can go to sleep, for that sentry will keep watch over me tonight. But greater than that sentry who keeps watch over me is the keeper of Israel, who neither slumbers nor sleeps. He will be my shade on my right hand. He will protect me from sunstroke. He will protect me from the noxious dangers of the night. The psalmist knows the dignity of being watched. What a difference it makes to know that you're being watched. Mr. Bolton told me the other day that one of the companies that he owned was Coca-Cola for Argentina. They had some, some difficulty with the sloppiness of their staff, and so he had erected mirrors that were on each level of the entrance into the building. And under each one of the mirrors, it would say, uh, is your tie in the right place? Is your hair combed? I don't have a mirror like that. And then then, uh, uh, it would be, are your shoes shine? Uh, These things were to call attention to the fact that you were being uh, looked at by other people and that your appearance was important. Well, there is a dignity that comes from being watched. What mother is there in this congregation or listening on this radio who has not known what it is to sit by the bedside of a little boy or girl who is sick and afraid? All you have to do is sit there and hold their hand and make them to know that you love them. When they get a little cut on their hand, they come and show it to you. They want you to see it. And all you do is look at it and kiss it and pat them on the head and they feel better. They're being watched. Someone cares and loves them and they soak it up and they can grow. I'm getting ready to take care of the roses this year and that's a real task. I didn't realize how much uh, was involved. Uh, some Texan sent me a dozen rose bushes when I was in the hospital and, <laughs> instead of a dozen roses. And now I got the roses. I was out there the other day, and my friend Steve Barden came by, and he said, you have aphids. I said, what's aphids? <laughs> he said, you're going to find out what aphids are. He, <laughs> he took me outside and showed me and told me how they would take over and caused me all kind of grief. And so I've been going out to look for these pests and to try to dust and spray for them to keep them from killing the roses. I don't like to see someone drag a garden hose through the rose bushes. I don't want to step on them. I want to be careful for them. Well, how much more should we be careful for those things which eat and destroy at our homes, those influences that are so subtle that get a head start on us that can cripple our children? How much more we ought to be careful for uh, those things that can hurt us there? So the psalmist takes comfort from the fact that he is being watched watched not only by the sentinel on duty, but watched by the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Abraham Lincoln, during the American Civil War, went one evening to a hospital near Washington, uh, D.C. He saw there a group of battered servicemen. There was one young boy. Lincoln passed by the moaning dying, wounded soldiers, and he stopped and looked at this pathetic young man. Photographs were not so common then as they are now. The young man was terribly sick and he looked but did not recognize Mr. Lincoln. And he said, sir, I'm going to die. Would you sit by me and would you write a letter to my mother? Mr. Lincoln sat down by him. He took a piece of paper, and the boy dictated to him a letter. Lincoln wrote it with a pencil. When the letter had come to its end, and the boy had signed his name, sending his love to the one who meant so much to him, his mother, the boy said, And, sir, would you sign your name, too, so that my mother would know who was so kind to me? Lincoln signed his name, Abraham Lincoln, and he held the letter over for the boy to see. The boy looked at the signature of the president and then looked back at the great man's face and he said, Mr. President, I didn't know it was you. And then he said, Lincoln said to him, is there anything else I can do for you? And the boy said, it won't be long now, until I'm going to die. And he said, would you sit with me through the night? Lincoln's biographer says that this occurred about 9 o'clock in the evening. Lincoln sat by the boy through 9, through 10, through 11, through 12, through 1, 2, until 4 in the morning. And when the light of dawn began to make its way, the spirit of the boy was released. And Lincoln folded his arms and closed his eyes, and the great man stood up to leave. But the young, wounded, dying soldier felt comforted by the fact that this august and great man was watching over him. What a difference it makes to us to know that God is watching over us. The God of the hills is also the God of the temple. The second Psalm uh, 122, the third Psalm tells us, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Not only does he recognize that God is the maker of heaven and earth, but God speaks to them from his house. And then the lesson that we had from the New Testament tells us, that the God whom we know and adore, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is also the one who in Christ comes to live and to be at home in our heart and to make his own presence felt in our homes. He orders home life. He tells us that wives are to obey their husbands, but he tells us husbands that we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Wouldn't be hard to obey a man who loved like that. He tells children to obey their parents, but he also tells parents not to frustrate their children by being overbearing in the correction which they bring to them. Such an important lesson for us to learn, such a lesson as we need. The Spanish have a proverb that an ounce of mother is worth a ton of clergy. And there's a lot of truth in that, because mother uh, is the one whom we really see so often the reality of Christ in. Now if we've failed as parents, we can learn from some of the things that have been said here, and from a review of something that we've talked about. We can learn not only from the hills, from the house of the Lord, from the heart in which Jesus dwells, and the home, in which he dwells. Dr. Nelson Bell, in his book, Convictions to Live By, has a whole section which deals with nothing but the home. And in this section, with which I would like to close, I want to read these words. Christian homes do not just happen. They are built by Christians, by men and women who sense something of the beauty and the wonder and the responsibility involved after the creation The home was the first institution established. Since that time, it has been the central unit of social order. In a very large measure, the character of the home determines the character of the nation. In the home, young lives are bent and molded and trained, and they are the citizens of tomorrow. In Japan, one sees dwarf trees, many of them representing birds and animals and even works of inanimate art, They are living trees dwarfed by a secret process, their formation becoming determined by careful bending and pruning during the growing years. In like manner, for good or evil, the home is the place where children encounter those influences that in such a large measure determine what kind of people they grow up to be. Building a Christian home is not an easy task for Satan hates and fights against the efforts of those who would establish such an institution. Only consecrated parents can face the blood and sweat and tears involved, the hard work, the courage, the steadfastness, the sleepless hours, the wrestling in prayer. But they do not work alone, for Christ works with them. Let us bow in prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, we pray for our homes. We thank thee for the love and the liberty and the life which we have in this country. We thank thee for all of the possibilities that are locked up in the hearts and minds and lives of the Father, many of the people who know and serve thee here have not had children of their own but they have had the privilege of influencing other young people by deeds of love and kindness, by pointing them to the things which are honorable and true in life. And we praise thee for them also. And we pray that as we consider our responsibility of molding a home that will honor thee, that you will help us to find the strength which we ought to find in the word of God and the communication which we ought to have with thee through prayer and the great communication of love which is the fruit of the Holy Spirit with one another so that we can be happy and comfortable in one another's presence and so that our children may see that Christ for us is not simply a name and a creed but he is in our lives and in our hearts. Bless us to this end, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.